Luke chapter 23, verse 33. And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. And the people stood beholding, and the rulers also with them derided him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he be Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar, and saying, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. And a superscription also was written over him in letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew, This is the king of the Jews. One of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. There are many, many places of interest in the land of Israel. I have walked through the streets of the old city. I have been privileged to ride a boat across the Sea of Galilee, to stand on the banks of the Jordan River, to see the ruins of ancient Jericho, and then to see the one place that I think is the most important place or one of the most important places in that land, and that is a place called Mount Calvary. We sang about it just a moment ago. To stand there and look at Golgotha, at least what they say is Golgotha, and I, I have no problem with believing that it is, but to stand there and to look at Golgotha, the place of the skull, and to know what happened. If that's not the place where it happened, there's another place just like it where what we read about just now happened. There's no place more interesting. And all the world comes to Israel many times just to see Calvary. I heard of a man one time that wanted to see Calvary. I'm going to see Calvary. And all through, you know, they take you to many different places in the land. And all the time they were touring, I want to see Calvary. I want to see the place where... Jesus was crucified. I want to go to Calvary. And the day they were supposed to go to Calvary, it was raining. And so he stayed in his hotel room all day and he didn't make it to Calvary. You know, that happens to a lot of folks. They want to talk about Calvary. They want to think about Calvary. They want to think about salvation. They want to think about the price that Jesus paid. But when it comes to the time of making that decision, they're staying in their rooms. They don't want to make the decision. They don't want to accept the Lord Jesus as Savior. The things that we read about and the events in our text took place in the first three hours that Jesus was on the cross. From about 9 a.m. to about 12 noon. First of all, we're going to talk about some of the indignities that he suffered, but among those is that while he was there on the cross, the soldiers gambled for his clothes. They had nailed him to the cross, but they played a game sort of, as I understand, as I've been taught, sort of like a dice game just to see who got his garment. Then the inscription that we read about was placed upon the cross, the king of the Jews, in three languages, Latin and Greek and Hebrew. Remember what 
some of the other gospels say about that. The Jews came and said, oh, don't put that up there. Put a sign up that says he says he's the king of the Jews. I like what Pilate answered. He said, I've written what I've written. I'm not going to change it. And so this sign was hung over the crucified Christ. And then there was a scoffing by the multitudes, jeering at him, making fun of him as he hung there on the cross. It's during this time that I know there were about seven sayings of Jesus from the cross. During this time that we're talking about, he spoke at least three times. First of all, he prayed for his enemies. These are the people who nailed him to the cross. These are the people who wanted to see him dead. And Jesus prayed what? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. Such love in the heart of the only begotten Son of God, yea, God in the flesh. And he prays for those that have nailed him to the cross, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Then we saw in verse 43, what did he do? He granted to this repentant thief eternal life. Amen. You know, I've heard a lot of theories about, from a lot of people and a lot of different religions about what it takes to get to heaven. I'll tell you what it takes. It takes an humble heart that's willing to bow before God and ask God for salvation and trust Jesus Christ and the price that he paid on Calvary. Amen. Remember, one of these thieves is making fun of him and laughing at him, and the other one just says this, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, this day you're going to be with me in paradise. And then in John chapter 19, we read that he told John, and I think this is wonderful, he told John to take care of his mother, of Mary. Even in his dying moments, you know, we have a lot of children today that don't take care of their parents, don't care for their parents, may mistreat their parents. In his dying moments, one of the things that was on the mind of the Son of God was the care of his mother after he was crucified. And so we see him there on the cross, and our text reveals four things about the crucifixion of Jesus. And the words of verse 33 are the title of the message, and the words of verse 33 are going to supply each point of this message this morning, because there in verse 33 it says, there they crucified him. This wonderful mountain, this wonderful place called Mount Calvary, the Son of God went there, and there they crucified him. So that's the first point, there. There, what is there? There is the place of crucifixion. There is the place where Jesus was hung on the cross. Luke calls it Calvary. Remember, Luke was the only Gentile that God used to write the scriptures. But Luke calls it Calvary. Calvary means skull. The other gospel writers, Matthew and Mark, use the term Golgotha. And Golgotha means a place of a skull. And if you just look at that mountain, what do you see? You see the skull. And it was there, or a place very much like that, that Jesus was taken and hung on the cross. And the first thing we note about it, that it was an elevated place, elevated in the public. It was a place outside of the city of Jerusalem. John chapter 19, verse 20. John says, for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh unto the city. He wasn't crucified inside the city. They took him outside the city and they nailed him to the cross. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 12 reminds us of this. It says that Jesus suffered outside the gate. 
He suffered outside the city. Wherefore, Jesus also that he might sanctify the people with his own blood suffered without the gate. You know what was outside the city? Especially in the uh, Valley of Gehenna. That's where they maybe took the carcasses of some animals that had been sacrificed and dumped them. And they took the bodies of prisoners that had been killed and dumped them and they set it on fire. And that was a constant burning. And that's why Jesus used Gehenna many times as an illustration of what hell is going to be like where the fire is not quenched and where the worm dieth not. So they took him outside the city and he was made to feel like an outcast. He was made to be condemned outside that city. And apparently this place, this Golgotha, this Calvary, was very near a very busy thoroughfare because Matthew 27, 39 says this, and they that passed by, people were constantly passing by. He said they reviled him and they wagged their heads. So Jesus was crucified in a place. It was not in a, you know, today, and there are still places that execute criminals. It has to be a really heinous crime and so forth to receive the death penalty, but oftentimes that is carried on in a more private place with only a small group of people there to witness the execution. But in this day, they had no such concerns and the Romans would just put you right out in public view and there crucify you and people could pass by and people could make fun of or or condemn or say whatever they wanted to say to the condemned prisoner and Jesus was there and people passed by reviling him and wagging their heads. It is a place of shame and a place of disgrace. Now we're not talking about a criminal hanging there. Yeah, there were two criminals, two thieves, one on either side of him. But we're talking about the Son of God, Amen. the sinless the perfect Son of God hanging on the cross, being shamed and being disgraced. No doubt many criminals had been taken to this place. No doubt many criminals had been hung on a cross in this place, had been crucified there. But now it's the Son of God that's being crucified. It was a place that was elected by God. I think that's important. I know that's important. It was a place that was elected by God. God chose Calvary as the place his son would die. You said, a preacher, how do you know that? Oh, there is so much there at Calvary. There's so much there on that mountain. You know, in the past, God has chosen particular places to do various things. In Mount Sinai, what happened? He gave the law to the Israelites. Where did he take the Israelites when they disobeyed him and he wanted to take them into captivity. They went to Babylon. And so there are various places. Jericho was a place of victory when they first entered into the land. And so Calvary is a place, but it is the place chosen by God. It is the place of redemption where God chose that his son would be crucified. Amen. You say, what is the significance of this Mount Calvary. What is the significance of this hill called Golgotha? Well, Calvary is a part of the Moriah mountain chain there in the city of Jerusalem. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, if you go to the book of Genesis chapter 22 and you begin to read there in verse 2, listen to what God said to Abraham. 
And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. Do you think it was just an accident, or do you think it was just coincidence that the Romans took Jesus out to this mountain that was a part of the Moriah chain to crucify him there? Because what is the picture of the sacrifice of Isaac? It's a beautiful picture of the substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ as a ram was substituted for Isaac. Amen. And so God chose that place. God sent Abraham to that place. Second Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem in Mount Moriah, where the Lord appeared unto David his father in the place that David had prepared in the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So again, this place has a history. It is the place where Abraham took Isaac. It is the place where the temple was to be built. The house of God was to be built. And here's the Son of God being crucified in this place. The events in the life of Jesus were directed by God. They were directed by his Father and he went there willingly in obedience to his heavenly Father. Even Calvary was planned. The crucifixion was planned by God. You know, in the law, there was a provision because they accused Jesus of being a false teacher, didn't they? They accused him of equating himself with God. And there was a provision in the law if someone did that, what was supposed to happen to them? They were supposed to be stoned. Stoned to death. But Jesus wasn't stoned. He wasn't murdered. They hung him to a cross. But here's why he wasn't murdered. He voluntarily went to the cross. Because that's what he knew he had to do. So Calvary becomes a place that is expressive of the love of God. Here God demonstrated his love for you and God demonstrated his love for me. Now if you want to get a vision, get a sight of God's power and God's wisdom, just look at the creation. God has set his order in this creation and it remains to this day. If you want to see God's love, look at Calvary. Just look at the cross. It expresses the love of God for fallen humanity like no other place. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 tells us this, But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You say, well, Christ died long before I was born. Yeah, but you were going to be. And God knew you were going to be, and God knew you were going to be born a sinner separated from him, and in the heart and the mind of God, you were already alive, and Jesus was already dying for you. First John chapter 4, verse 10, Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us, and sent his Son to be the propitiation of the satisfaction for our sins. Calvary expresses the love of God. Where? Did Jesus become the satisfaction for the payment of sin, of the sin debt? It was on Calvary. We sing that song at Calvary. Years I spent in vanity and pride, caring not my Lord was crucified, knowing not it was for me he died on Calvary. And there he paid the price from the time Christ died to the present. Calvary stands as that expression of God's love. John 3, 16, for God so loved, we don't hear that enough today, you know what? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. There, the place, the place of crucifixion, but then it says there they, 
And that talks about the people. There they crucified him. Who is responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus? You know, years ago when that movie, The Passion of the Christ came out, everybody was wanted to blame the Romans and some wanted to blame the Jews. And so I said, there's only one group to blame. Just go look in the mirror. But there were people involved in the crucifixion of Jesus. In Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28, Peter said this, And that of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were gathered together. Now, who does that make up? Everybody. Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Romans, the Gentiles. The Jews, everybody. And he says, for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. Yes, we read about Herod. We read about Pontius Pilate. We read about Herod in Luke chapter 23, verses 8 and 11. And so Pilate brought Jesus to, to Herod. But you know what? Herod was like so many people today. Herod was just sort of curious about Jesus. He didn't really believe he was the son of God. He just wanted to see a miracle. He had heard about Jesus. He had heard about the miracles he performed. And there are so many people today who want to get close to Jesus, just close enough to see if he is who he says he is. Just close enough maybe to see a little miracle. But they really don't want Jesus. Pontius Pilate. I think Pilate had a little admiration for Jesus. You have to understand, I said something Wednesday, I was going to preach on the politically incorrect Jesus and I decided not to do that. But I'm going to say something about the politically incorrect Jesus in just a moment. Pilate was your consummate politician. Pilate tried to please everybody. And Pilate had had some problems with the Jews revolting and riots and so forth in Israel. And so he had been warned by Caesar, you better get that under control. I'm going to remove you. So Pilate's looking to please people. But Pilate listens to Jesus. And Pilate can't find any fault in Jesus. He can find absolutely nothing worthy of death. And so now he's trying to figure out how to, in fact, he did take a basin and wash his hands and says, I'm washing this man's blood off my hands, but he couldn't do it. Amen. But Pilate tried to some way get rid of Jesus and please the people and he couldn't do it. And the people cried out for Jesus to be crucified. And in fact, what they said, because Pilate, verse 20, in Luke chapter 23, if you read it, verse 20, Pilate really wanted to release Jesus. But what did the people say? If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. They put the pressure on the politician. And guess what happens when pressure's put on politicians? They usually cave, don't they? And that's exactly what Pilate did. He had a decision to make. I can put an innocent man to death, and I know he's innocent. I can put him to death, or I can release him, and I can face riots, and I can face demonstrations, and I might lose my position as governor if I do it. So what did Pilate do? See, this is the politically incorrect Jesus. He caused political problems for Pilate. So what did Pilate do? He says, I'll scourge him. John 19, 1 talks about the scourging of Jesus. And we don't hear a lot about the scourging many times when we start talking about the cross. But the scourging was a terrible, terrible punishment. And we'll say more about that in just a moment. Peter talked about the Gentiles. He says, with the Gentiles, that's the Romans. 
their leaders had the power to say no to the crucifixion of Jesus, but they desired to please the people. The Roman soldiers played a big part in the crucifixion of Jesus. They nailed him to the cross. They stood the cross up. They pierced his side with a spear. But you know what? Pilate and Herod and the Roman soldiers were all tools in the hand of an almighty God Amen. to pay the price for salvation. Peter mentioned the people of Israel. As Paul stated, they were kinsmen according to the flesh, right? From the humanity point, they were those who were kin to Jesus. They were Jews just like Jesus was. What does John 1.11 say? He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Jesus said he was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He came first to Israel, and they rejected him. And, you know, I... If they had done what they were supposed to do, we'd still have the gospel today. But I'm thankful that God just didn't give up when the Jews rejected Jesus. Amen. And called a man named Saul of Tarsus who became the apostle Paul, who became the apostle to the Gentiles. But the chosen people of God who had the messianic promises, the chosen people of God to who pertained, as Romans 9, 4 says, the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises of God, they rejected Jesus. The people who should have known. Why'd they do it? They did it due to the hardness of mankind's heart. And we still have people with hard hearts today. They're not all Jews. There's a whole bunch of Gentiles that have hard hearts. And when Jesus Christ is presented to them as the only way of eternal life, if you'll just repent toward God and put your faith in the shed blood of Jesus, you know what they say? They said, no. And these were not happy until Jesus was crucified. Now let's get back to what I started to say at the first. But folks, we're all guilty. If you want to know who put Jesus on the cross, if you want to know who drove the nails, if you want to know who held the scourge and beat his back with the scourge, if you want to know who stuck the spear in his side, just go look in the mirror. Because you see, he did it for each and every one of us. We're part of the Gentiles, all right? Jesus went to the cross on account of my sin and your sin. Romans chapter 3. There's a lot of wonderful verses in the third chapter of Romans where Paul, writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, reminds people of their need of Christ. There is none that doeth good. No, not one, he says in Romans chapter 3, verse 12. And verse 23, he says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. In chapter 5, verse 12, he says, Wherefore is by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. So death has passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Every man, woman, boy, and girl born into this world is born with a sin nature that separates them from God. That's why they do the things that they do that we look upon many times and say, oh, that's immoral, that's wrong, and that's absolutely right, that's wrong. But it's because they need a Savior. It's because of that sin nature that dwells in them. Jesus Christ died for the sin of the whole world. And I don't care where somebody's from, I don't care what their skin color is. I don't care what kind of religion they've been raised in. If they do not know Jesus Christ as Savior, they're going to die and go to hell at the very moment they die. What does Jesus endure today? 
at the hand of sinners. Folks, the same mocking, the same ridicule, and the same rejection as he endured during his life on this earth. There they crucified the punishment. Death by crucifixion was one of the most cruel and painful forms of death. It was intended to cause the victim of the crucifixion literally to drown in the buildup of his own body fluids. As they built up in the, the sack around the heart, as they built up in the lungs. And they would just drown of their own body fluids. Well, for Jesus, this punishment was unmerited. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. He did not sin. He did not sin in his body. When he talks about guile, that's sinning through speech. That's trickery. We had a lot of I'm going to say this. I'm not going to get in trouble for it because you won't get me in trouble. We got a lot of preachers today who are full of guile. Amen. They're preaching something other than the Word of God. They're trying to get people to follow them. There was no guile in the mouth of Jesus. He did not try to trick people. He told them the truth. He didn't threaten. He didn't revile. He committed himself to God. And he bare our sins. After the religious and civil trials, do you know there was not one verdict of guilty announced about the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, we talked about the two malefactors, a thief on either side of him. And you think about those, one of them is hanging there. He's being crucified the same way Jesus is. And he's hanging there and he's making fun of Jesus. If you really are the Son of God, why don't you get yourself down off the cross and get us down too? And so he's making light of the Son of God. But listen to what, I'll reread what that second thief said. But the other answering rebuked him saying, Dost thou not fear God? This man recognized Jesus for who he said he was. This is God in the flesh hanging here on the cross seeing thou art in the same condemnation and we indeed justly for we receive the due reward of our deeds. You know what he's saying? We're thieves, we're getting what we deserve. We knew what the punishment for this crime was. We got caught. We deserve being crucified. We indeed justly for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. That thief declared the innocency of the Lord Jesus. He's saying he doesn't deserve to be crucified. And yet there he hangs on the cross. And this punishment was unmerciful. The Romans were known for their brutality. I mentioned the scourging. They'd take a whip with at least nine straps of leather on it with bits of bone and stone and metal tied in the end or attached some way in the end and they would beat the back of the person who was being scourged. Spurgeon said the sound would have been that of the tearing of threads in a tangled loom. 
Someone suggested that after about the second or third blow with the scourge, the flesh and the skin would open up so that you would begin to see the white of the rib cage as he was being beaten. And according to Roman law, you couldn't beat him more than 39 times because they felt that 40 would kill a man. And so Jesus was beaten with the scourge. At the hands of the Jews who passed by, he's getting physical and we would call it today emotional abuse. They're making fun of them. They're laughing at him. Uh, again, at the hands of the Romans, unmerciful brutality. And you know, I can stand here today and I can tell you about how horrible the crucifixion was and I have a description that I could read to you of how horrible it was. But no matter how horrible, I can make it sound from this pulpit, folks. I cannot make it as horrible as it really was. I have said many times, we have seen these Renaissance era pictures, paintings, of Jesus on the cross. And what do you see most of the time? Hands outstretched, a trickle of blood here, a trickle of blood here, a trickle of blood from his feet, a little blood up here, a little red space right here on the side where they stuck the spear. Those don't come close. I've never seen, and I always have to explain this, I've said it to you before, I've never seen the movie The Passion of the Christ. And there's a reason. I don't think I could take it. I don't like to think of my Lord being treated that way. But I've seen some still photos. And the man who played Jesus, and his name just went like that. Uh, but anyway, the man who played Jesus, they made him up good. They made him look really, really bad. But I tell you what, I don't think that even comes close to the way Jesus Christ looked hanging there on that cross. It was a horrible death. And you and I cannot imagine the suffering that he endured that we might have everlasting life. I'm just going to be honest with you. That's why it just really bugs me when people who claim to be saved, I'm going to put it that way, that's their profession, just think it's too much trouble to get up and go to church on a Sunday morning. Just think it's too much trouble or the weather's too bad or whatever it may be for me to get up and put some clothes on and go worship the one who did that for me. Amen. My goodness. How cold-hearted, hard-hearted, brazen have God's people become if they won't... Boy, I'm wanting to say what I... Is it okay if I say what I want to say? If they won't get their lazy selves up and come to worship God... Amen. Say, preacher, we've never heard you talk like that before. I'm sorry, but I'm talking about the sacrifice of Jesus. And I'm talking about people who just take it for granted. People who have professed to have applied the blood of Christ by faith. And it means little to them. Well, you know, I'm saved and I'm going to heaven. Now I can go out and live like I want to live. By the way, Izzy, I've left the, the outline behind. So you know, we, we get back to it, okay? <laughs> but people just say, well, I'm, I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. Now, I don't care how I live. If that's your attitude, you better check your salvation. Amen. If you say that I'm saved and it doesn't matter how I live, you might need to be saved. Because the Word of God tells us that when you come to know Jesus Christ as Savior, there's going to be a change in your life. Your value system is going to be different. Things are going to be turned upside down as to what is most important and what is least important. 
And the things of this life and the things of this earth are least important, folks. Now, I think I've got that out of me now. I've been waiting a long time to say that. Think of what Jesus Christ endured for us. There they crucified him. This is the person. We heard about the people. We heard about the place. We heard about the punishment. Now we hear about the person. Many, many people had been crucified by the Romans. But never one like this man Jesus. You know, from what I've read, that when a man was to be crucified, he would fight those who were trying to nail him to the cross. He would curse. He would spit. He would kick. He would do anything he could to keep from being nailed to the cross. But what does the Bible tell us about Jesus? It says, like a lamb before her shearers. He just, I can just imagine they put that cross beam on the ground and Jesus just laid out and stretched out his arms. Put his feet out for them to put the nails in them. Here's the Son of God hanging there on the cross. Doesn't deserve to be there. He is the sovereign God. He is the sovereign Son of God. Chapter 14 of John, verse 9. Remember what he said? He that hath seen me has seen the Father. Everything that we can know about God, everything that God will allow us to know about him is seen in Jesus Christ. And people say, I want to get to know God better. Will you get to know Jesus better? That's the only way to know God better. Get into the word of God. He is the one who came to destroy the works of the devil. Listen to 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. There are two great powers in this creation, and that's God and that's Satan. Satan is a fallen angel. Angel Lucifer created by God who rebelled against God and God cast him down. And Satan has had a lot of time on this earth to do a lot of evil and perform a lot of evil works. And he even has religions that lead men away from God instead of to God. Jesus came to destroy that. And you come to know Jesus Christ as Savior, you won't want to do the things that the devil wants you to do. He came to pardon humanity. Colossians chapter 1 verse 14, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. The scripture says without shedding of blood there is no redemption. The blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin. Only the blood of Jesus Christ Amen. has the power. You know, we sing that song, there's power in the blood. I heard about a preacher one time, he said, oh, he wanted to take any reference of blood and, and of the cross out of his church. Well, my goodness, you're going to be powerless. Amen. You remove the cross and you remove the blood. There's power in the blood and it's soul-saving power. It's life-giving power. It's life-living power in the blood of Jesus Christ. And he had the power to come down off the cross. Amen. And I'm glad he didn't do it. He said, no man taketh it from me, talking about his life. He said, but I lay it down on myself. I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it up again and I'm glad he has the power to take it up again because next week we're going to talk about him taking up his life again. <laughs> he came forth out of that tomb. Spoiler alert, okay? The tomb's empty. Jesus was not a martyr. 
Jesus was not murdered. As I said a moment ago, he voluntarily went to the cross, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And Philippians chapter 2 continues that how he set aside his equality with God. He came to this earth and took on human form. He lived among men. He willingly went to the cross and died there as a sacrifice for sin. And God has highly exalted him that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wow. That reveals to us the sovereignty of the Son of God, folks. And He's the sinless Savior. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, For He, talking about God, hath made Him, talking about Jesus, to be sin for us, and Jesus knew no, who knew no sin. Jesus knew no sin. He had never sinned. He didn't know sin. But God put upon him the sin of the whole world, the sin of all of us, to be the sacrifice for sin for us. Why? That we might be made the righteousness of God. How can I be right? How can I do right? How can I live right? And then how can I know that I'm going to heaven when I die? Trust Jesus Christ as Savior. But don't just trust him as Savior. I don't think you can really trust him as Savior unless you make him Lord also. He must be Lord of your life. Jesus did not come to say, well, let's see, do I want to be Savior or do I want to be Lord? No, he says he came to be Lord and Savior or Savior and Lord. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness. What does he want us to do? Live unto the righteousness that we have. When we have the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, he wants us to live righteously. Now, not self-righteously. You know, I know people who go about self-righteous living. They think because they go to church and, you know, got their name on the roll and all this, they want to look down their noses at other people. They want to compare themselves to other people. They want to condemn other people. They want to think they're better than other people. They want to find fault in other people. That's self-righteousness. But Jesus died that we might have righteousness and live righteously and then he says by whose stripes you're healed and he's the suffering substitute Isaiah chapter 53 I started to say whether we have time to read this or not we're going to take time to read it all right see what I've been told what I've been told by many Jewish people is that rabbis will not let the Jews and discourage the Jews from reading the 53rd chapter of Isaiah some have called Isaiah 53 the gospel according to Isaiah. I think that's pretty good. But listen to these verses. Talking about Jesus. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We are turned everyone unto his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. I talked about how he just laid out, I believe, for those crucifying him. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked, 
the thieves, and with the rich in his death, Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief, and when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul, and shall be satisfied by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Jesus died for you and for me and for everybody else. I'm not just talking about the folks in this building. You take every man, woman, boy, and girl. I don't care whether they believe in Jesus right now or not. Jesus died for them. And his sacrifice was sufficient. What, eight billion people almost on the face of the earth today, hey, that's no problem for the Lord. His sacrifice is sufficient. John chapter 1, verse 29, The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. He has come, and he's coming back. Him, the Prince of Life, the fairest of 10,000, the jewel of heaven, the only begotten Son of God, the Lamb of God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Lord Jesus Christ, my Savior and my Redeemer. He's coming back. After Jesus dismissed his spirit from his body, and that's how it happened, men did not, men can't kill God. So they didn't kill Jesus. Jesus, remember, he said, it is finished. And when he said, it is finished, the scripture says he then bowed his head and he gave up the ghost. He dismissed his spirit from his body, all right? And so after he dismissed his spirit from his body, they put the dead body in a grave, but the grave couldn't hold him. And he arose, and we're going to maybe sing about that. I'm sure we'll sing about that. We're going to preach about that next Sunday. He arose and he proved his power over death and over hell and over the grave. Now when he said it is finished, that is one Greek word, tetelestai, and that word means paid in full. Jesus said everything that is necessary to purchase mankind's soul has been done and everything that is necessary not only to save men but to keep him saved has been accomplished. Tetelestai, it is paid in full. And he has done it all for you and me. And we sing, years I spent in vanity and pride, caring not my Lord was crucified, knowing not it was for me he died on Calvary. There they crucified him. I don't know how much plainer we can get in trying to share Jesus with somebody except just to tell them God gave himself as a sacrifice for you, for your sin. And I know people want to protest. Well, I'm a pretty good person. Huh? I, I'm, I'm not too bad a person. But the word of God says all have sinned. Now, do I need to give a definition of the word all? The Greek word is pos, P-A-S. And you know what pos means? All. Okay. Everyone. Everybody born into this world is born with a sin nature. And everyone born into this world needs Jesus Christ as their Savior. He went to Calvary. 
He hung on the cross. He dismissed his spirit. He was buried. He came out of the tomb. He, we get over to the book of Acts, ascended back into heaven, and he is coming back. Amen. And started with his crucifixion at Calvary, there they crucified him. Amen. 